Well, there's an old American folk song called Billy Boy. Charming Billy is in love with a girl who is apparently too young to leave home. When you sing the chorus, she's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. You get the impression that Billy's girl is still a teenager. But listen closely to the lyrics. How old is she, Billy boy, Billy boy? How old is she, Charming Billy? Three times six and four times seven, 28 and 11. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. Well, if you add it up, Billy's girl is not such a young thing after all. If you're good at math, she's actually 85 years old. Suddenly, you're concerned about Billy's girl. This is a folk song about a dysfunctional person. By the time you're 85, you're expected to grow up and move out. You're no longer a child. You're an adult. And this was Paul's concern in regards to the church in Corinth. At this stage in the life of the church, Paul expected them to show some maturity. Instead, they were acting like babes. They were true believers, but there was some dysfunction. They weren't growing up. And Paul coins a term to describe them. Carnal. Chapter 3 begins. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. In chapter 2, Paul had divided humanity into two groups. He talked about the natural man and the spiritual man. You remember the natural man doesn't know God. Man is a sinner by nature, born alienated from God. Left to himself, mankind spirals to destruction. Sin and rebellion, ignorance and prejudice come natural for a natural man. But the spiritual man is animated by God, by God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within him. Oh, he also sins at times, but it grieves him, for it goes against his nature, his new nature. Deep inside, he has a desire to please God and to love others. He is a spiritual man. But now in chapter 3, Paul brings up another type of person. He calls this person the carnal man. The Latin word carne means flesh. And I think about this a lot when I eat a bowl of Kathy's chili. For she puts meat, lots and lots of delicious flesh, in her chili. It's chili con carne. Con carne, carnal. It's chili with meat. Carne means flesh, and carnal describes the believer who lives a life orientated toward the flesh. He possesses God's Spirit, but he isn't possessed by God's Spirit. He hasn't allowed the Holy Spirit to shape and color his outlook. His life is governed by natural and sinful appetites. In essence, he has God's Spirit, but he lives as if he doesn't. And Paul refers to such a person as a carnal Christian, a babe in Christ. And carnal Christians show the same kind of behavior you see in the church nursery, where the babes hang out. If they don't get their way, if they're not the center of attention, they cry and they pout. They can't stand on their own and they need other people to prop them up. They lack discernment and thus become vulnerable to deception. Because of their short attention span, they get easily distracted. And finally, they don't feed themselves. 
Their only nourishment comes from the pastor or from their church. Realize, if you've been born just a few weeks or even a few months, this is an understandable dilemma. You're a babe in Christ. It takes time to mature. But hey, if you've been a Christian for years now and you're still carnal, you still act like a babe, something is dysfunctional. You need to identify it, repent of it, and grow from it. Nowhere in Scripture do we see playpens and burping bibs in heaven. Apparently, along the way from heaven, from earth to heaven, God expects his people to grow and to mature. You know, when my daughter-in-law was pregnant, I think it was Dana, Dana got an interesting baby shower gift. Caught my attention when she got it. It was a PPTP. Dana, did you get one of these PPTPs? It's a device that aids in changing a baby boy's diaper. A washable cloth cone caps off a certain part of the male anatomy. This protects the diaper changer from being fired on by an uncontrollable bladder. It's a great idea, but I hope it's just a temporary fix. I mean, don't you agree the real goal is for the young man to grow up and to gain control of his bladder? And this is God's goal for us. Rather than be carnal, he wants us to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And this is why God doesn't take us to heaven the moment we're saved. He leaves us in this wicked world. He subjects us to trials and temptations. The resistance training is what builds endurance and teaches us to trust in him. Causes us to grow up. Well, Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, but even now you are still not able. And it grieves Paul that they're still babes. Now see, here's another characteristic of a carnal Christian. He drinks milk when he needs to be eating solid food. You know, it's cute to watch a newborn suck on a bottle. But a teenager still on Similac is an alarming problem. And this was the case with the believers in Corinth. They, they had an immature approach to Scripture. See, they were sucking on the basics, you could say, rather than cultivating an appetite for meteor truths. Hebrews 5 verse 14 describes the issue. It says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are full age. Realize a babe in Christ reads Bible stories. A mature believer studies Bible doctrine. A babe in Christ wants to know about God. The mature person seeks to know God himself. A babe marvels at what God does. The mature person worships who God is. A babe learns biblical principles but the mature gains a biblical perspective. A babe fills his mind with facts. The mature fills his heart with love. Again, it's okay to be a babe for a season, but too many believers stay there. They never graduate from kindergarten and become spiritually mature. Paul says to the Corinthians, For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal? In behaving like mere men. See, another mark of carnality is friction and division. 
You would expect to see quarrels and fighting and biting and selfishness in the church nursery, but not in the sanctuary. Babies squabble, not mature adults. Apparently, Corinth's worship services resembled the toddler's class. For Paul writes, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Again, kids fight over trivial, selfish stuff. You know, you can often hear the the little boys on the playground screaming at each other, my dad is stronger than your dad. No way, my dad can whip your dad. Little kids take pride in human heroes, in celebrities. And this was the situation in the Corinthian church. The believers had polarized around their favorite teachers. Oh, I am of Paul. No, well, I'm of Apollos. <coughs> they had divided and created denominations among themselves. I hope you know I am deliberately non-denominational. I think it's enough to just simply wear the singular label Christian. That should be enough for us. For me, emphasizing any other distinctive or, or association unnecessarily only diminishes the importance of our connection to Christ. Yes, we're Calvary Chapel, but we don't have to run around calling ourselves that. Most importantly, we're followers of Jesus. But speaking of denominations, do you know how many Southern Baptists it takes to change a light bulb? You know? At last count, 16 million, but they can't agree if the light bulb needs to be changed. How many Mennonites does it take to change a light bulb? Eventually about five, but they can get along fine without a light bulb. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Three, one to change it, one to bless it, and one to pour the sherry. Episcopalians. How many Nazarenes does it take to change a light bulb? Eleven, one to change it and ten to organize the potluck supper that follows. How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? They're not sure, but there's a committee studying the issue. How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? (laughs) What's a light bulb? (laughs) How many Church of Christ does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but if anyone tries to change it, the light won't come on. Anyone else tries to change it, the light won't come on. How many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Just one, but let's not offend anybody by the change. How many Roman Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? Nine, one to install the new light bulb, and eight to sell raffle tickets on the old one. (laughs) How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Three, one to change the light bulb, and two to bind the spirit of darkness. And then finally, how many Calvary Chapel guys does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but he never shows up to church on time. Hey, I understand that each church has its own flavor and style, and that's okay. I believe God created a wide array of churches to reach a wide variety of people. What's wrong is when churches accentuate their differences in a prideful way, as if they're better than other churches inherently. We need cooperation, not competition. Despite our differences, we are all still one body in Christ. And so verse 5 poses the question, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? 
In other words, why get excited about the messenger? It's the Lord Jesus who died to save us, not his messengers. Yes, someone delivers the message, but the Lord is the one who equips the messenger and sends him out and even softens the hearts of those who hear him. It's the Lord Jesus, not his messenger, that's responsible for our salvation. And it's the Lord Jesus that we follow. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Hey, in Corinth, Paul had planted and Apollos had watered. But you know, in Ephesus, the roles had been reversed. It was Apollos who had planted, and it was Paul who had watered. See, God uses us to touch different people at different points in their life. You know, I've spent years with some people sowing seeds into their lives, watering them with prayer, and I've seen very little fruit. Then on the other hand, I've bumped into some people for the very first time, and I get to lead them to Christ. They're receptive. The moment's now. See, God just uses us in different ways at different times. But always, without exception, though you might plant, though I might water, it is always God who supplies the miracle of life. It is God who gives the increase. You know, an agricultural school in Iowa studied the ingredients needed to grow 100 bushels of corn on an acre of land. Here's their partial list. 4 million pounds of water, 6,800 pounds of oxygen, 5,200 pounds of carbon, 160 pounds of nitrogen, 125 pounds of potassium, 75 pounds of sulfur, etc., etc. The researchers estimate that less than 5% of what's actually needed to produce a crop of corn is supplied by the farmer. In other words, it's God who supplies the lion's share of the resources. It's God who gives the increase. And the same is true of the spiritual harvest. Compared to the work of the Holy Spirit, our work in the saving of souls is minor. Oh, we can sow the word, but we can't make it grow in a person's heart. Nothing happens eternally or spiritually for that matter unless God's spirit is involved. It's always God who gives the increase, and thus it's God who deserves all the glory. Well, verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. In other words, we're on the same team. Christians should be working toward the same goal. We're working for the same boss. And our boss will reward us, not by the size of our contribution or even by the sphere of our influence, but whether we're faithful to the task he assigns. See, we don't get to choose our job. He chooses it. We're to be faithful. Look at how chapter 3 breaks down. In verses 1 through 4, we are God's family. And our emphasis as family members is on maturity, on growing up. Now in verses 5 through 9, we are God's field. And our objective is activity. We're to sow, we're to water, but God gives the increase. Now, in verses 9 through 23, we're God's temple, and our concern is bringing God glory. Put these all together, maturity and evangelism and worship, these are the believer's priorities. Notice verse 10. 
According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Any architect knows that the span and strength and height of a building depends on the density and depth of its foundation. The foundation is the most important part of the structure. And the same is true with any kind of spiritual construction among believers, even among churches. We need to lay a good foundation. And verse 11 tells us what that is. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Here is the solid foundation on which every Christian ministry should be built, Jesus Christ. You know, anchor a ministry to a social cause or to a pet doctrine or to some spiritual phenomenon or to a political agenda or to a style of worship or even to an exciting personality and you're building on a shaky foundation. If you want a ministry to last, build it so that it points people to Jesus. Verse 12 tells us, Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now, when you go to erect a building in Gwinnett County, you don't just slap up a structure. You have to comply to the county building codes. And God also has his building codes. See, in serving God, there are guidelines. You know, I grew up in a church with a very domineering pastor. He kind of pushed folks around to get his way. One day, my mom and I, we were discussing, we were reflecting back on it, and she kind of defended him. She sighed. She says, yeah, but he did lead a lot of people to Christ. That's when God spoke to me through my own words. I said, but mom, ministry in ministry, the end never justifies the means. And it doesn't. The end doesn't justify the means. It's not just what we get done for Jesus that counts, but it's how we do it. That's what Paul is teaching us here. He says it matters how you go about ministry, not just what you accomplish. One day, our works will be judged of what sort or type or motivation from which they spring. See, the Bible speaks of three end-time judgments. First is Matthew 25, where he separates the sheep from the goats. The nations of the earth are gathered together to be judged in the valley of decision. It's a judgment of nations. In Revelation 20, we see the great white throne of judgment. It's where the rebels and unbelievers and lost are tried and condemned before God. But believers also appear, the believers will appear before the Bema seat, before the judgment seat of Christ. This is where you and I will be judged if you know Christ. And this is Paul's focus here. See, unbelievers will be judged by their works, whether they were good or evil. Whereas Christians have been saved by faith, not works. But our works of service after we're saved will be tested. God will reveal of what sort they are or they were. In other words, he'll expose the motive 
behind our service. In other words, the times you taught Sunday school, grumbling because you had to get up early to babysit those snotty-nosed kids at the church. Oh, boy, that may just burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. Or the time you ushered and you hurried folks along after the service so you could get home and watch some football. That might just get burned right up. See, the acts of service, those acts of service will be like wood, hay, and stubble in the fire. Oh, they look impressive going in, but you know what happens. The fire of God's holiness, His holiness burns those up like a crisp. Whereas the time you jumped out of bed, eager to love on those little ones with the love of Jesus, or the time you led worship with a smile on your face and put in some extra effort, when those acts of service pass through God's holiness, They'll come through unsinged like gold and silver and precious stones. The type of works that we do, the motivation behind them is what will be tried. Verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Again, we'll be saved. We're saved not by our works, but by the blood of Jesus. Our soul will escape judgment but because, because Jesus passed through the fire for us. But our service will be tested to see of what sort it is. <coughs> he says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy which temple you are. You know, in the Old Testament, the priest would never defile or pollute what had been dedicated to God, including his temple. And this principle carries over into the New Testament. The church is God's temple. And church work, like temple work of old, should never be polluted with a sour attitude or with jealousy of another man's ministry or with manipulation, or with greed, or with pressure tactics, or with you fill in the blank. Christian service should be holy, and it should bring God glory. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And to prove his point, Paul quotes two verses, Job 5, verse 13, and Psalm 94, verse 11. He says, for it is written, here's Job, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the psalm, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. In other words, he reminds these Corinthians not to get proud of what you know. Recall from chapter 1, God doesn't reveal himself through human knowledge but through simple faith. Don't become proud of what you know and how well you can decipher and organize information. For up against God's wisdom, we're all just bozos. He says, therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. See, the splinter groups in Corinth laid exclusive claim on their favorite teacher as if he belonged to them. 
Yet in the New Testament, God's family is called a fellowship. That's why I like to call our church a fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia, which means all things or to hold all things in common. Thus, the blessings of Christ are yours only as long as they're ours. We hold them in common. Christianity is about sharing, not hoarding. And so think about this. What belongs to God belongs to those in Christ. Oh, we like that, don't we? Yeah. But follow the logic. Thus, all that belongs to me belongs to you, and what belongs to you belongs to me. Thus, there's no private property in the spiritual kingdom Christ is building. Author Alan Redpath puts it this way. He says, I love to go out into the country and remember that this is my father's world. And because it is his, it is mine. I may never own legal title to an inch of it, but it is all mine in the Lord Jesus. That means every snowflake, every sunset, every rainbow, every smile belongs to me, belongs to you, if you belong to God. All that belongs to God is shared among his children. And this should be the attitude that we have toward one another. Well, chapter 4 tells us, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now notice, Paul describes a Christian minister in two ways, with two terms. As servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Now the Greek word translated servants means under roar. Slaves were chained to the oars below deck in the Roman galley ships. Two columns of men would row to the cadence of their overseer. The Romans kept up the pace by using a whip. The slaves had no say as to the speed of the boat or how hard they rowed. Their only job was to follow orders and stay in step. And so, welcome to Christian ministry. If you want to be involved in ministry at any level, at an entry-level job, or at middle management, or as the CEO for that matter, the job title is servant, under rower. You know, somewhere along the line in our culture, the word minister gained an exalted status. But the Lord has never called anyone to be a star, or a celebrity, or a sensation. We're all just servants. The assistant pastor for years at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa was Pastor Romaine. And Romaine would tell the young pastors, he said, serve the Lord as if you're serving him in only your underwear. You know, if you're in your skivvies, you're not going to want people to notice you, are you? The idea is that you're going to serve and then you're going to get out of the spotlight as quickly as you can. He said, that should be our attitude as servants. We are servants of Christ, but we're also stewards of the mysteries of God. And a steward was a household manager. The steward was a trusted slave placed in charge of the master's house. He was expected to manage the household affairs with his master's interests in mind. And likewise, God has entrusted us with his treasures, with incredible spiritual resources. We're now to handle them wisely not wastefully. Note the steward's lone priority, verse 2. 
Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Not successful necessarily, just faithful. You know, we live in a world preoccupied with success and all of its symbols. Even in church, often the worth of a person's ministry is measured by budgets and buildings and databases. Bucks in the bank and buns in the seat, as I call it. But you can have great numbers. You can have loads of nickels and noses and still not be pleasing to God. I mean, the Mormons got lots of people, but they're heretical, not faithful. Don't be deceived. True success in ministry is determined by one quality. Have you been faithful? Have you been obedient to what God has called you to do? When Mount Vesuvius erupted, he covered the cityscape of Pompeii under a blanket of lava. Years later, when the ruins were searched, a sentinel was found, encased in the lava, still standing by his gate. Even in the chaos of the eruption, the man never left his post. Like a good steward, when the smoke cleared, he was found faithful. And this should be our goal as servants and as stewards of the mysteries of the Lord Jesus. Verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. Now, evidently, Paul's critics in Corinth were accusing him of being unfaithful. This was the problem. And in the next few verses, Paul is going to answer their charges in three ways. First, he says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. You guys are judging me, but I don't even judge myself. Rather than rake himself under the, over the coals, Paul rested in God's grace. He didn't even judge himself, he said. Rather than look inward, Paul looked upward. You know, I used to hang with a group of Christians that were into self-examination. I mean, they spent enormous time and energy searching their own hearts for hidden sins. You know, in retrospect, I think it was a waste of time. This is not how Paul dealt with himself. Instead of digging for sin, Paul reached for the heavens. He focused on knowing Christ, and he trusted the Lord to bring to light the flaws he needed to address. You know, too much introspection will cause you depression. That's what it'll cause. Spend too much time. You know, if we want to start looking for sin in our lives, we won't have far to find it. I mean, spend all your time looking for sin, and you'll have very little time left to look to Jesus. That's where the healing comes. That's where the help comes. Faith grows when we get our eyes off ourselves and fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Well, the second argument, Paul, uh, where he refutes these critics, he makes the comment, for not I know of nothing against myself. In other words, even if he did look at his own life, he had a clean conscience. Yet I am not justified by this. God created in us a conscience as a moral compass. You know, our conscience is a tool to help us discern right from wrong. But realize the conscience can also deceive us at times. Proverbs 14 verse 12 warns us, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Your conscience can be vulnerable to certain blind spots. Your conscience might not pick up certain problems. You know, sin is kind of like a crumb in your beard. I mean, without a mirror, you're usually the last one to see it. 
And this is why for Paul, Jesus was his only judge. He says, but he who judges me is the Lord. Paul's answer to his critics in Corinth was that the Lord Jesus was his judge. And then third, Paul realized that all permanent judgments won't be made until Jesus returns. He says in verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. You know, there's a danger we run into by casting judgment on another person. In the here and now, rarely do we see the whole picture. Only the Lord has all the facts. Once a couple, they came to me for premarital counseling, and when it surfaced that they were living under the same roof, I started hammering away at the idea that they needed to separate from each other. They needed a, there needed to be a separation. Well, suddenly the girl, she bolted from the room in tears. It turned out that a few weeks earlier, her apartment had been broken into and that she had been raped. Her boyfriend was now sleeping on the couch for her protection. You know, I apologize for jumping to a conclusion before I knew the whole story. You know, only Jesus can read our real motives. And this is why we need to leave the judgment of a person's heart up to that person and to his master. Only at the return of Jesus will all of our hearts be revealed and all of our motives be disclosed. Until that day, don't you jump the gun. Well, verse 6 tells us, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. And here Paul identifies the root cause of the schisms in Corinth. It was pride. They were being puffed up. You know, the easiest way to lift up myself is by putting down another person. See, by making you look bad, I can make myself look good. Pride was the cause of their destructive divisions. It wasn't just that someone felt loyal to Apollos. He then wanted to try to put Paul down. And the Corinthians who felt an allegiance to Paul, they weren't willing to leave it at that. They also wanted to pick apart Apollos. See, it was all about pride. And notice the cure Paul suggests for this kind of unbridled judging. <coughs> he said, learn not to think beyond what is written. Learn not to think beyond what is written. See, here's the boundaries of our judgment. If it's not written in God's Word, in His written Word, if you can't pick up the Bible and point to chapter and verse, in other words, if it's a question of style or opinion or taste or tradition, if it's not in the Scripture, then you need to stop your judging. Just because you don't like it doesn't make it wrong. Paul says in verse 7, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? See, all that the Corinthians had, they had received from God. It was all a gift of His grace. It's not as if they had earned any of their blessings. Why then are they now taking pride in what was a gift? It reminds me of the pastor who asked his friend, he says, 
Will you pray that I stay humble? His friend replied, well, first tell me, what do you have to be proud about? The answer for us all is zilch. All we have is a gift. In verse 8, Paul reeks with sarcasm, and I'm sure it angered the Corinthians when they read these verses. Paul mocks the arrogant believers of Corinth. He says, you are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. In other words, the Corinthians were acting like royalty. They were flaunting their privileges in Christ while ignoring the responsibility that came with those privileges. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The word spectacle was well known to Roman citizens. The emperor controlled the masses by keeping their stomachs full and their minds entertained. Bread and circuses was the Caesar's formula. And the various forms of Roman entertainment were known as spectacles. Amphitheaters were built to host athletic competitions. Chariot races were held in Rome's Circus Maximus, the Talladega of the day. At times in the Colosseum at Rome, the stage was flooded with water so that they could hold mock naval battles. Gladiators fought to the death on its normally dusty floor. A favorite bloody headliner in the Roman Colosseum was to toss Christian leaders to hungry lions. It all fed Rome's thirst for blood, as, as Paul put it, for spectacle. Paul is saying that while the Corinthians are passing these frivolous judgments on each other, while they're dividing up and causing this friction, there are other believers in the church who have been made a spectacle to the world, who are paying a steep price to follow the Lord Jesus. The prideful Christians who are in Corinth are being carnal, while men and angels are focused on the apostles who are being abused by the Romans as spectacles. You know, we would be served well to be served well to think along the same lines. So often we live here in America in a comfort of our own secure and cozy churches, you know. And we divide and make a big issue out of petty things and picky things. While there are people in the world today, brothers and sisters in China, parts of Africa, different places in the Middle East, who, who fear for their lives, who can't meet in a public assembly without worrying that someone's going to report them and they're going to be in trouble with the authorities. I mean, these kinds of things are going on in our world today. Well, in verse 10, Paul speaks sarcastically. He contrasts the persecuted apostles with the prideful Corinthians. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. How did the mighty Corinthians become so wise and so strong and so honorable in their estimation of themselves while the apostles, men that God honored and God appointed as the head of his church, who sacrificed their very lives for Christ's sake, how did they become as fools? Could it be that the Corinthians were judging success by worldly criteria? Could it be? 
You know, in the movie Field of Dreams, an Iowa farmer, he hears a voice in his cornfield, tells him to plow under his crop and build a baseball diamond. Well, he builds it. And shadowy men from a bygone era, they play ball in his outfield. Of course, the farmer's extended family, they think he's nuts. He's a certifiable nut. No one trusts his actions. They think he's being reckless. Everybody calls the man a fool. But you know, as a Christian, I also hear voices. I base life-altering decisions on a voice nobody else hears. I've taken economic risks to follow that voice. And as a result, I've seen God in action when no one else saw him. Am I ready to be seen by other people the way the farmer's neighbor saw him? Am I willing to be seen as a fool for Christ's sake? Well, the Corinthians were proud. They were concerned. They were worried about their own image in the eyes of others. They wanted to be seen as wise and strong and honorable. In contrast, Paul could care less about his image. He was willing to be a fool if it was for the sake of Christ. Verse 11, to the present hour we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. Remember, a steward's job was not to get rich, be comfortable. It was to be faithful, even if it required suffering. He says, and we labor working with our own hands. You remember it was in Corinth that Paul met a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. They shared Paul's trade of tent making. And together the three friends had gone into business. In other words, Paul had worked a secular job while he was in Corinth to support his ministry. But he didn't complain. You know, he didn't consider it a, a negative. He did it for the sake of Christ. He continues listing the sacrifices that he made for the sake of his ministry. He says, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. Hey, Paul fought back. He was a fighter. He never rolled over. He always struck back. But it was the way he fought that set him apart. He responded to personal attacks with blessing. He resisted opposition with increased commitment. And when falsely accused, he retaliated with the truth. Paul says, we have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. You know when you fry bacon? You fry bacon or sausage. And, and when you, you're done serving, you, you come back and, and you look at the little crumbs and the... the uh, fat that's all in there now and the grease and all of that and you take your spatula and you scrape it off the pan that's the off scouring that's what that is Paul says that's what we've, we've been made we've been made like the off scouring of all things until now literally he's saying we're treated like the scum of the earth this is how erroneous human judgments can be the apostles, the heroes, the leaders of the church, those that God had called were the offscouring of this world, the scum of the earth, treated by the world as the scum of the earth. Hey, the people God crowns, the world often clubs. Folks who are honored in heaven are those who will be mistreated on earth. 
Verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Paul was grieved that the Corinthians listened to his critics. They didn't trust in the faithfulness of his ministry. Paul was the person who had led them to Christ. In essence, he was their spiritual father. You know, Paul once said to one of his traveling companions, he said, Luke, I am your father. You remember Luke? You know, he's one of Paul's traveling companions. Well, the Corinthians will have 10,000 teachers in their lifetime, but only one father. And this is true of all believers. The pastor or the friend who led you to Christ, the church where you were saved, will always have a special place in your heart. Oh, you might enjoy other churches and other teachers, but you only have one spiritual parent. And this is what made the Corinthians' doubts of Paul all the more painful to him. He felt personally betrayed. You know, one of the first lessons that we learn involving ministry is that love always flows downward. You need to learn this. Everyone needs to learn this. Love always flows downward. We don't love our parents as much as our parents love us. My son, Nick, I know he loves me. He didn't love me as much as I love him. I love him with all my heart. I love him in ways he, he doesn't understand. Well, he's learning. You know why? Because he's got a son. He's got kids. And you know the funny thing is? His kids aren't going to love him as much as he loves his kids. They're not. He's going to love them with a passion and a zeal and a commitment. And, and they're going to love him, but not as much as he loves them. Why? Because love flows downward. You know, we love God. Some of us love God with all our hearts, but not as much as God loves us because love flows downward. Love is like water. It always flows downward. And the same is true in ministry. You need to understand this. Just because you love and invest in someone else's life and feel called to help them grow in Christ and have a special concern and passion for their lives doesn't mean they'll return the favor. It doesn't mean they'll love you in the same way that you love them. In fact, they probably won't. The people you serve will probably never love you as much as you love them. Why? Because love flows downward. It just does. Well, Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 16. He says, therefore, I urge you, imitate me. And what a powerful statement this is. You know, Paul is not like some parents I know who tell their teenagers, do as I say, not as I do. I hope you're not a foolish parent who actually thinks your teenagers are not going to see through that. I mean, don't think for a second your kids don't see through that as hypocrisy. No. Do as I do, not just as I say. Follow me. Imitate me. 
Paul sought to be a leader by example. He says, I urge you, imitate me. This is the kind of leadership that we need. This is the kind of leaders that we need in the body of Christ. Follow my example. Verse 17, for this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. Not all of Paul's love had gone unreciprocated. Timothy stood by Paul as a faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. See, Paul's critics had the attitude, while the cat is away, the mice will play. And here Paul issues a warning to the Corinthians. Before long, I'm coming to Corinth, and I'm going to set things straight. Verse 19, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but with the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. When Paul arrives in Corinth, he's going to add some pow to his preaching. Paul's a tough hombre. He's not afraid to lace on the gloves when need be. Now, I'm not exactly sure what he has in mind here. But it sounds like to me he's prepared to cram a little humble pie down some haughty Corinthian throats. That's what it sounds like to me. When Paul hits town, he's going to demand an accounting of this church's attitudes and their accusations. And yet Paul wants his return to Corinth to be a happy reunion. And he tells them it's their choice. The chapter closes, verse 21. Well, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul's approach to the Corinthians depends on their attitude toward him. You know, sometimes discipleship requires discipline. You know if you're a parent, it takes both love and a firm hand to raise kids and to pastor a church. It takes both. You know, here Paul threatens them, tells them. He says, I'm coming. You straighten things out so I can come with, with love, not, not with a rod. I remember when my boys were little tykes and they were intent on misbehaving. All I had to do, all I had to do to get their attention was just to take off my belt. Just, I would make a scene. I'd walk into their room. I would take off my belt. I would hold it for a second. And then I would walk over and I would lay it over the top of the door where they could see it. And then I'd walk out of the room. When dad's belt came off, I didn't have to say another word. And here Paul is taking off his belt. That's what he's doing. He said, do you want me to come with with a rod or in love? Let me close with a line from a country song. You never can go wrong by doing that. Sometimes you're the windshield. Sometimes you're the bug. Paul isn't threatening them. He's just telling them they'll be the bug if they don't stop bugging him. So, Lord, we thank you.